Hmm. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Russell, can you mute this fixed mic, please? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray now as we come to consider your word that you would uh, quieten our minds and our hearts and help us to, by your spirit, focus on what you were saying to us that uh, we would be people who not only hear your word but uh, allow it to shape our lives and to uh, be the basis for our hope. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, did you happen to see Christopher Hitchens on TV this week? He was on uh, the ABC show Late Line on uh, Wednesday night and also on Thursday night. It was an uh, interview spread out over two nights. Christopher Hitchens is the, um, one of the world's most prominent atheists. We've talked about him before in church services. He, uh, a few years ago, wrote a book called God is Not Great. And he spends much of his time uh, doing interviews and engaging in debates with uh, Christians and other people who believe in the existence of God and uh, arguing against the idea that it's right to believe in God. Uh, it was a... Um, uh, last year he was in Sydney 
and he was one of the speakers at the conference at the Opera House, which was called the Festival of uh, Dangerous Ideas. It was an interesting interview on Late Line, uh, and also a bit sad. Sad for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons that it was sad uh, is because earlier this year, a few months ago, uh, Christopher Hitchens was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus. Uh, he said that the cancer has now spread uh, and it's classified as being stage 4 cancer. Uh, the thing about stage 4 cancer is that there is no stage 5. Uh, the word curable uh, simply does not apply. And so at the age of 61, uh, one of the world's most prominent atheists is literally staring death in the eye. So how does a person who uh, very actively does not believe in the existence of God and who does not believe in the afterlife, uh, how do they deal with the reality, how does a person like that deal with the reality that his own death is just around the corner? And it was for that reason that he was interviewed on Late Line. Tony Jones is a great interviewer and he asked some insightful questions. One of the questions, for example, was uh, he mentioned that there was uh, a lot of people, particularly Christians, who have said that they are, they are praying for Christopher Hitchens, praying for two things, one that he would be converted uh, and also praying that his cancer would be cured. So the question that was put to him was that uh, if you were cured, and it's very much against the odds, medically speaking, uh, if you were cured, how would that make you feel? As an atheist, would you feel nervous about the fact that you'd been cured against such great odds? And uh, his answer was interesting because he said that the idea of praying to God will, and I quote, not go away as long as our fear of death persists, which he thinks it will. Uh, he said, we are the only mammals um, who actually know that we're going to die and who we are the only ones who have made an attempt to award ourselves with an afterlife uh, under certain conditions. And he said that uh, that idea of the afterlife, which we have awarded ourselves with, is a very tenacious illusion. Now, my question is this, uh, is that all that it is? Is the idea of an afterlife an illusion which we have invented in order to help us to cope with life and to award ourselves for living life in a particular way? Uh, or is it the case that there is actually some solid evidence for the belief in a life after death. Now, these are big issues, aren't they? These are the issues of life, of death and, and of eternity. And uh, I think that we ought to be... Uh, we may disagree with Christopher Hitchens, but we can uh, at least credit him with the fact that he's actually putting these issues onto the agenda. He's getting people talk, thinking about them and talking about them. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish and I pray 
that there would be more people who would rise above the trivialities of day-to-day life and actually start to think about the big questions of life, of death and of eternity. They're realities for us, aren't they? I just you know, was told that, uh, about someone who's just died. I was just told about one of our congregation members who's just been given a terminal diagnosis. These are realities. And as we, uh, in our series on 1 Corinthians, it now takes us to chapter 15. And what I want to do is I want to slow down and spend a bit of time on chapter 15 uh, because it's a big chapter uh, with big ideas. And I'd like us to spend actually three weeks on it. We're going to look at verses 1 to 19 uh, this today verses 20 to, I think, 34 next week, and then 35 to the rest of the chapter uh, the week after. Uh, because to skim over 1 Corinthians chapter 15 would, would be to shortchange ourselves. Uh, there is great truth, great theology, uh, which teaches us about the last things and about what happens to us after we die that are packed into this chapter. So it pays us to spend some time on it. And the reason why it was an issue for Paul to have to address with the Corinthians was that there's basically nothing new under the sun. And 2,000 years ago in Corinth, there were people who were saying that there is no such thing as resurrection, no such thing as the idea that after we die there will come a time when we are raised from the dead. But the people who were saying this were not actually atheists. If you have a look at verse 12, if you care to open up at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, in verse 12, Paul says, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see that? Now, who was it that was saying those things? Who, who was saying that there's no resurrection of the dead? It was some of you. Uh, well, the Corinthians, the Corinthian church. Uh, there were members of the congregation who were saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, why would they say that? Look, over the years, I, I don't know if this is your experience or not, but I've worked in a few different churches and I've been congregation member at several other churches and I I have come across church members who have been long-term church members Uh, in one case a fellow who was secretary of the committee of management of a church uh, who have told me that there is no such thing as life after death this fellow was about to die and he was going through his funeral arrangements with me and uh, and he said to me, and by the way, I don't believe there's any such thing as life after death. Member of the church. Had been committee management secretary. Now, my, my guess is that for people in that kind of situation, uh, that belonging to a church has been something which has been part of their culture and they don't necessarily believe uh, what the Bible is saying, but they go along to church for other reasons. We don't know why it was the case that people in Corinth were denying the resurrection because Paul doesn't tell us. 
there's a couple of different options. One option would be that uh, they simply uh, believe that when you're dead, you're dead, um, that that's it, that uh, you're you just, um, uh, as it, uh, you know, in uh, Dead Poets Society, it said that you, you just uh, uh, food for worms, um, fertiliser for, for daffodils. Maybe that's what they were saying. Well, there's another alternative, and that is that they had bought into the whole Greek philosophical idea of the immortality of the soul, but not the immortality of the body. And so if that's the case, they're not, not necessarily denying that there is a spiritual afterlife, but they're uh, denying the Christian view of the afterlife. Now, whatever the case, the, uh, the value in this is that Paul had to address it and in so addressing it, he uh, provides for us uh, probably the most comprehensive chapter on the doctrine of the afterlife. So how does he address it? That's what we're starting to look at this morning, and as I say, it'll take us three weeks to do so. But um, can I uh, get you to look at verses 1 to 4? Let me read those for you. He says, Now, brothers... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Now, firstly what Paul's saying here is that those people who are denying that there's such a thing as resurrection, that they are the ones who've changed the story. Uh, he wants them to remember that he received a message, that he passed on that message to them, and that they staked their life on that message. Now, some of you grew up in Christian homes and you have been taught about the gospel since, you know, year dot. Uh, there may be some of you who can actually remember the first time that you ever heard the gospel and even the first time that you actually uh, believed in the gospel. And some of you have shared your stories with me, and I'm, which are fantastic. I can remember the very conversation where I heard the gospel and put my trust in the gospel. I can remember the man who shared it with me. I can remember the content of what he shared. Uh, in fact, uh, last year I was in Sydney and I found myself in the very building where I first heard the gospel and repented of my sin. And I tracked down the exact room and that I was sitting in when I had this conversation. I took a photograph of the room. I think people around me might have thought I was nuts. Why is this guy taking this photo of this room? I remember uh, shortly after that, one of my friends who I was sharing this with, he 
said to me, oh, don't worry, Scott, I'm sure it's just a phase that you're going through. You'll pass through it. Well, that was 30 years ago, and the phase doesn't look like it's coming to an end. <laughs> and the message that I preach to you is the exact same message that was shared with me on that night. Paul wants the Corinthians to remember their first experience of the gospel, their first taste of salvation. And he says to them in these verses that he received the message, he passed on that message to them, they received it, and they stood on it. They staked their life on that message. It is that message of the gospel which saves them, but it will not save them if they say, well, actually, we don't believe it anymore, or there's bits that we you know, want to take some that we want to leave. You see, to Paul, uh, in verse 3, the gospel message is of first importance. Um, there is simply nothing more important in life than the gospel, is there, folks? The gospel is more important than uh, your career. The gospel is more important than your business. The gospel is more important than your education. It is more important than your lifestyle. It is more important than the house you live in. Uh, it's actually more important than your family. The gospel is more important than your very life because the gospel determines where you will spend the afterlife. There's nothing more important than that. So what is this gospel? Uh, when I share the gospel with people, typically I tend to use a six-point summary of the gospel. And uh, I've taught some of you how to use that six-point summary. It's called the two ways to live. Paul is more succinct than I am. Uh, he had a three-point summary that he shared with the Corinthians when he shared the gospel. Uh, what were Paul's th key three points? Well, firstly, in verse 3, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. Christ died for our sins. Now, we know that he died because he was buried. It's not like the Muslims who say that Christ was actually taken down off the cross before he died. No, no, no. He was stone cold dead and they buried him. You don't bury someone unless they're dead or unless you've made a very bad mistake. Right? Uh, Christ died for our sins and he was buried. There's a reason why he died for our sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. Uh, the, the guilt which we deserved, the guilt of the punishment which we deserve was laid on him. He died for our sins. And it was according to the scriptures. It was exactly what the Old Testament prophets had said would happen. Um, there are many verses in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 53, that points to the death of God's Son. So that's his first point, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Point two, um, uh, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Uh, because on the third day, something incredible happened. He didn't stay dead. He came back to life again. Now, 
When it says on the third day, what does that mean? I mean, the Bible tells us that he died on the Friday and that he was found to be alive on the Sunday morning. Well, that's not three days, is it? Um, but it's the parts of three days. Uh, by the way, the Jews, for them, a day finishes at 6pm and a new day starts at 6pm, so it's a bit different to us. They would have included the part of the Friday um, that Jesus was dead, uh, the Saturday and the part of the Sunday, so that the Sunday is the third day. Now, that again was exactly what the scriptures had said would happen. Um, in passages like Psalm 16, verse 10, where King David said that uh, prophetically that God would not abandon uh, him to the grave, nor would he let his holy ones see decay. Now, I'm sure that an atheist would say, all this is well and good. We know that this is what you believe, that Christ died and he rose again. But what about this little thing called proof? Where's the evidence for it? Well, the third point in Paul's gospel message is the evidence. Verse 5. He says, And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus appeared. That's Paul's three points. And here he lists five occasions when people saw Jesus after he had died and risen from the dead. Uh, but this is not an exhaustive list. If you, if you uh, took the, each of the Gospels and Acts... Uh, you would find that there were uh, at least 12 times uh, over a period of 30 days that Jesus appeared uh, to people after his resurrection. Now, the Corinthians, of course, they knew all of this already. But the question is, why were the eyewitness accounts an essential part of Paul's gospel message? And the answer is that Paul wants to impress upon people that the resurrection is not a myth. Um, you, you see, Paul is not vague, is he? I, I don't know that you... I sometimes get really frustrated when people want to convince me of something and then they tell me that lots of people believe such a thing. And I say, well, who? And they say, well, you know, I can't give you any names... <laughs> but I'm sure lots of people believe it. And it's all very vague. You don't know if it's true or not. Uh, Paul's not like that. Paul names names. Uh, he says that, um, you know, first of all, he appeared to Peter. Uh, then he appeared to the 12 apostles. Uh, then to James. Then to all of the apostles, which I take it is a larger group than the, than the 12, um, because apostle means messenger. And then in verse 6, he says that on one occasion that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. 
Uh, he may, makes the point that some of those 500 have fallen asleep. And by the way, that's a nice little uh, term, isn't it, fallen asleep? Uh, because that expresses the Christian view of death, that it's not the end, uh, that we've fallen asleep. But he says that most of those 500 are still alive. Now, why do you think he mentions that? Any thoughts? It seems to me that he mentions that because he, it's the issue of evidence. That if the Corinthians have got any doubts that Jesus had risen from the dead, there are people who are still around, they can go and find these people, and they can ask them for themselves, did you see Jesus after he'd resurrected? How are you sure that it was Jesus? What did he look like? What did he say? Convince me. Give me the evidence. Paul's saying you can track these people down. They can tell you what they saw. Eyewitness accounts. Now, these days there are people who say that the resurrection is a myth uh, and it, that it's a myth that grew up around the Christian church and that over the centuries that the Christian church manipulated the Bible and inserted into the Bible these stories about resurrection. They say that the resurrection grew up around the Christian church. I want to say that the opposite happened and that is that the church grew up around the resurrection. It was the resurrection that caused people to believe. It was the resurrection that changed people's lives. And the prime person that Paul wants to talk about whose life was changed was himself. Um, now, we see this uh, in verses 8 through to 11. In verse 8, Paul says, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, he, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Um, Jesus appeared to Paul last because he spoke to Paul from heaven. Uh, when Paul was on the way to Damascus uh, to persecute Christians, uh, Paul was heading to Damascus to, uh, to, to, to turn up at the doorstep of the homes of Christians with soldiers and have them arrested, to have them thrown in jail and for some of them to be killed. That was why he was heading to Damascus. Paul was ashamed of his past. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul describes himself as being a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a violent man, and he describes himself as being the worst of all sinners. And yet, friends, by the time he penned 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
He had spent the last 20 years of his life proclaiming to people the truth about Jesus. And no matter what it cost him, and he worked harder than anybody else by the grace of God to do so. Why did he do that? Because he'd seen the resurrected Jesus. And when he saw the resurrected Jesus, that it changed his life forever. Friends, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when atheists say that there is no evidence for the afterlife, they then discuss some of the evidence for the afterlife and they debunk it. Um, what evidence do they normally talk about? Well, from what I've seen, they talk about stories of people who've had near-death experiences. You know, you know what I'm talking about there? You know, a person has actually clinically died and then they've been resuscitated and then they tell about what they experienced and they talk about you know being drawn towards this light and seeing family and friends and stuff like that uh, but stories like that can be easily debated against I mean you've got Kerry Packer I mean Kerry Packer clinically died and he came back uh, do you remember what he said when he was interviewed he said look don't worry about it I can tell you there's nothing on the other side don't worry about it See, that's the kind of evidence that the atheists sort of look at and they, they debunk. But what they really need to be doing and what we need to be having a discussion about is the evidence that the Bible presents. Uh, they, they, they attack the wrong evidence. They, they should be dealing with the evidence from the Bible about the afterlife and the evidence which the Bible presents is the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb. The many eyewitness accounts. The changed lives. The fact that the Bible, the Bible's record is historically accurate. These are the issues that we need to be having the debate about. But these are the issues which are not debated. Now, what about us then? Because it's one thing for Jesus to be resurrected, but how does the resurrection of Jesus prove that there is a resurrection from, for all people, whether it's a resurrection to eternal life or a resurrection to eternal suffering? What's the connection between Jesus' resurrection and our afterlife? Well, the answer is in verses 12 through to 19. And uh, there is something which Paul says three times in verses 12 to 19. Uh, firstly, in verse 13, he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 15, the second part of it, uh, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. And verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Now, let me explain what I think he's saying there. He's saying that the very fact that Jesus 
this, this one man, Jesus, has been raised from the dead. The only reason that the one man, Jesus, is raised from the dead is because of the fact that in God's plan, there is a, such a thing called the resurrection of the dead. If there is no such a thing as the resurrection of the dead, then Jesus would not have been resurrected. And what we'll see next week is that the resurrection of Jesus is like the first fruits uh, of the harvest. It's the fruit that comes out first, and following that there is a big harvest of uh, much fruit. So the resurrection of Jesus proves that there is such a thing as the resurrection of people. Um, I, I, I was speaking to uh, a very dear member of our congregation uh, a few months ago and it was just a few days before she died and she knew that she was about to die and conversations like that are profound conversations by the way uh, you can tell a lot about a person by their last words and she, I said to her, I wanted to make sure that she was assured of her salvation, that she understood the gospel. And I, I, I asked her, how did she feel about the reality that she was staring death in the eye? And she was, she was actually joyful. Uh, and she said to me that uh, I have no fear of death. I said, Why? And she said, well, because I know that I'm going to heaven. I said, well, how do you know that? And she said, these are exact words, because Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. I did a funeral about a week or so after that. Uh, that's the Christian hope, and it's based on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It tells us that life does not end at the grave. Now, let me ask you this, and it's, it's a hypothetical question. Let's say, and, I don't, and this will not happen, but let's say that somebody discovered the bones of Jesus uh, in a grave somewhere just outside of Jerusalem. And scientifically, they could prove uh, with no doubts that they were the bones of Jesus. Remember a few years ago that there were some guys who claimed that they'd found the tomb of Jesus and, and uh, the bones of Jesus. So if someone found the bones of Jesus in a grave, how would that affect uh, you and your faith? Um, would, would you still be a Christian? Would you still want to be a Christian? Would there be any reason to be a Christian? Well, Paul answers this question, uh, and in verse 19 he says that if Christ has not been raised, then you and I should be pitied more than all men and women. Why? Well, because we've wasted our lives. That's why. Uh, because we've built our lives upon something which has turned out to be a hoax. Uh, the greatest hoax the world has ever known. He says, you know, you're, you've believed in vain, your faith is futile, and he said, and he would be a liar. 
because he's the one who's told you that he saw the resurrected Jesus when he didn't. But there's one more thing, and we see it in verse 17. He says, if Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sin. Why does Paul say that? Friends, there is a direct connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Because the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is the proof to us that A, what he said about himself before he died is something which we ought to take serious, pay serious attention to. It tells us also that, G, that God the Father has accepted his sacrifice, that his death on the cross has in fact paid the debt for our sin and that as a result of that, the death has now been conquered. Death does not have the last word and the resurrection of Jesus proves that. But if he has not been raised from the dead, then our sins have not been paid for. Good news is that he has been raised from the dead and his resurrection means that he is victorious over death, uh, not just for himself but for you and I as well. Now, as I said earlier, I felt sad uh, watching Christopher Hitchens uh, interviewed on Late Line this week. By the way, if you missed it, uh, you can watch it on the internet on the iView website. Um, I was sad because of his suffering. It's always sad to see the reality of death. And I have to say that Christopher Hitchens was far more subdued and contemplative than what he was in other interviews that uh, I've seen him conduct and we can understand why. But I was also sad because of the fact that even at this critical stage of life that he was not dealing with the real issue. Uh, you see, he said this and you've got to give him credit for it. He said that it would be disingenuous of him to simply turn to God at this point because he, knew, he knows that his body is shutting down and that he would deny the beliefs of a lifetime just in order to provide for himself an insurance policy for the afterlife just in case. Uh, he didn't want to do that. But the problem is that he still did not uh, deal with the real evidence for the afterlife. Uh, he said this, and I quote, We cannot say that there is no God, that there is no afterlife. I'm into that. But what he's saying is that we can't say, we can't say with 100% certainty that God doesn't exist. We can't say with 100% certainty that there is no afterlife. What we can say, he, he, he said, is that there is no persuasive evidence for or argument for it. No persuasive evidence, no argument for it. And I get asked this question, well, what about the evidence of a man who came back from the dead? What about the arguments around the resurrection of Jesus? 
This is the topic that was not being discussed. And friends, this is the very issue that we must all come to terms with. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Are we to believe the accounts of the eyewitnesses? For if he did rise from the dead, then there is such a thing as the afterlife and we need to make sure that we're right with him. If he didn't rise from the dead, then don't worry about it. But you're still in your sins. I think we need to be talking to people about the resurrection. That is the proof of the afterlife. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the clarity of uh, what Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 15. We thank you that Jesus uh, was dead, that he did rise from the dead, and we thank you that because of that, our sins have been forgiven. Father, we are also grateful that his resurrection means that there is a resurrection to eternal life for those of us who put our trust in him. We pray that we would be such people, that we would take our stand on these truths of the gospel, that we would not waver. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.